2: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 2012, Frankel wins the Judmont International at York, the penultimate of an
0: incredible run of 14 wins. Great streak starts somewhere, so start your own free bet streak. Simply bet £20 on the first race at York on the exchange and get a £20 free bet. With each bet you win, you'll get another. Free bet streak from Betfair. Exchange
2: back bets on the win market, only £20 free bet awarded at Mobile free bet street bets will be equal to the winning free bet stake from the previous day awarded at 12 p.m the following day valid for 72 hours tc supply 18 plus b gambleware.org the final furlong podcast is proudly brought to you by attheraces.com your ultimate resource for finding winners
1: welcome to the show lots to talk about i am delighted to say that i'm joined by the guardians chris cook Hi, hi, how are you, Emmett? Welcome back to the show, my friend. Good to have you on, and uh, looking forward to getting your insight from the big stories over the last few days and the big races as well. And we're also joined by the Don from the Bedford Exchange, Barry Orr.
0: The Don. <laughs> Making me sound like some sort of mafia alter ego.
1: We have to get you a mafia-style hat and and a Frankie Tight Lips coat, and then we'll be yeah. sorted. We'll be sorted then. Donny. Big yeah, we'll get you. we'll get you sorted then. Uh, I'm Emma's Kennedy. Let's start with Frankie's French Connection, shall we? It was a very profitable trip to Deauville wow, as he took wow. the pre-Jacques Lamarois, and one of the dogs was clearly on as well. Uh, we'll start with Palace Pierre, who was the star of the show of the weekend and absolutely bolted up in the end in the pre-Jacques Lamarois beating the Niarchos horses, Alpine Star and Circus Maximus. Chris, this was, this was impressive. Um, I'll be completely honest and say that I was in the Circus Maximus camp. I thought the ground would go against Palace Pier, but it was no trouble to him whatsoever.
2: Yeah, you and I were of like mind. Um, in fact, I, I spent a couple of days sort of going over the race, just thinking, you know, there's there's going to be something in here that you can bet against the fab Because, you, you know, you've got a short-priced fab You've never run anything like this kind of ground before. And it was really desperate ground. I mean, I think, like in the previous week, they had something like, oh, yeah. Hundred mils, something ridiculous. I mean, it, it was um it got so bad by the Thursday night. Sumi was winning races by going under the trees, and he's um, just sort of getting really ridiculous results, and and you timing races with a calendar instead of a clock. Um, and uh, so I thought, there's you know, there's no way Palace beer is going to be like what was eleven to eight, something like that. You, you can't. They can't justify that. There's got to be something in here with experience of going through mud. And you think you, mean, you couldn't get a tougher horse than Circus Maximus. So I thought that was probably the way to go about eleven to two. But my goodness, I mean, I, you always have to remember, don't you? that raw ability is the is the number one thing, um, and it'll get you out of trouble. You know, Frankel wouldn't have liked deep ground, but he went through it and beat um, the French horse. whose name escapes me in that Champion Stakes at the end of his career,
1: Circus Tizangos, um, or however it is you pronounce heads, it. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, and, and that's what, I, mean, I, I think you sort of have to start mentioning Palace Pier among exceptionally talented horses. Now, um, it, it sort of feels slightly wrong because he's only had two races in top class company. You know, it was like a couple of months ago, he was running in sort of non-races at Newcastle. Um,
0: but he's What's so fascinating about him though, isn't it, Chris? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's properly good. And, and you, you hear John Grossman talking about him and, and he
2: never had any question about his ability. And and then you, you've always got in the back of your mind, or, uh, you know, when you're opposing him on Sunday's race, that he did that amazing thing at Royal Ascot, didn't he? He ran the last two furlongs faster than anything else did the whole week, except for the first two in the King's Stand, which was Patash and um, Stablemate, whose name escapes me just now. But I mean, uh, he, you know, he ran the last two furlongs faster than Hullo Yumsain in the next race. Um, you know, hello, or career sprinters. It was a pretty impressive thing to do. And, you know, now that we know he can also run well in conditions like that, you have to sort of get quite imaginative to um, work out how he's ever going to be beaten.
1: It was a mark of just 98 that he was running off in Newcastle at the start of the season. So that was clearly a good thing, Barry. It was clearly a good thing that day. He just keeps on progressing. And, that was the exactly what Chris said was the exact reason why I was against him at the weekend. Said, this was him really having to step up and show that he could do it, and he was taking on proper Group 1 horses. And he's obliterated the field in the end. Uh, and he's done so by beating a, a fellow contender at Royal Ascot and Alpine Star who was visually stunning. She's gone to France since and looked a little bit unlucky not to beat Fancy Blue that day. That form has worked out well. His clash with Mahathir, if it happens in the QE2... Is going to be one hell of a race, and how would you price it, Barry?
0: Um, it'd be difficult to price. Obviously, he's shown that he goes with a bit of giving the ground. That's for sure. He was even what was he was given four pounds to the to the filly Alpine Star, although he was getting five pounds off the older horses in the race: uh, Circus Maximus and Persian King Roman nice. A lot of horses here in that race yesterday. I thought disappointed. A circus Maximus. I don't think that was as true. Running Persian king, same Romanized. That was just too bad to be true. What a wasted trip for Billy Lee, who's going to have to quarantine for a fortnight mm. on his return to Ireland. Um, he was beaten out of sight, really. But yeah, Palisbury is an exceptional. He looks an exceptional talent considering um, it's only what his. It, he's two for two now um, since that win in Newcastle, and he's definitely a horse going in the right direction. Frankie knew what he was doing, giving, Haydok, or giving Ast- uh, York a miss to, to go to France. What way would you bet in the QE2? I think it all depends on ground, but Mohatter, I think, would go off favorite against him, although it would be a fascinating race. Uh, we cut him from 10-1 to 1 into 5-1 to 1 for the Breeders' Cup Mile uh, off the back of that cause, just because we haven't got the QE2 priced really. Um but yeah, the QE2, if they were both to rock up there, would really be a fascinating race. But I think Hat there would just go off favours. That's my own wow. personal opinion at the moment. I'd
2: certainly want to be backing Palace Pier against Mohath there because he'd be the younger horse as well when he gets the weight allowance, which, you know, um, a horse like him, we wouldn't say he'd really need. Um, well, I mean, they all need it, don't they, to, to equalise the, sort of, the difference in, in maturity. But um, it... it, it It puts him in a good position, I'd
1: say, the three-year-old way arms. Big time. It gives him a a nice little advantage. Is there a chance, Chris, that these horses clash in the QE2 and then go on and clash again in the Breeders' Cup mile? Because in this strange year of Rona, there's now a sufficient gap, as Nick was saying on the show a couple of weeks ago, between Ascot and the Breeders' Cup. Uh,
2: I guess so. I mean, obviously... I haven't quite adjusted my thinking to um, the Breeders' Cup yet. Uh, and I'm not sure that the connections of these horses have really either. Um, but yeah, I mean, you'd absolutely love to see that. Why not indeed if they're both fit and healthy at that stage of the season, which is always the, the big if, I suppose, for these horses. The, you, the Breeders' Cup isn't going to be the number one, I think, in in the minds of connections of either horse just now.
1: No, it's going to be all about the QE2 for the moment. And Marcus Tregoning has already come out today, Monday, and said that he's very much looking forward to the clash. So it's on. Uh, Frankie Dettori saying the Palace Pier is a special horse. So hopefully it is on, and and it's going to be very, very interesting. The point that Barry made about Circus Maximus and Romanized. Romanized clearly didn't perform, but Circus Maximus, would you look at him and take Barry's view? Because the more I've looked at the race, the more I think that was disappointing from him. Is it just that he's been beaten on merit, or did he really did he really show up his best yesterday and get beaten by five and a half lengths? Uh,
2: I, I definitely, I'm going to keep that possibility open in my mind. Uh, it could be, I, I, I think it maybe went a shade quicker than would have been ideal in those conditions. Um, and that might've undercut his finishing effort to some extent. Um, Romanized, I think you would just ignore that run. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys. I never imagined that would be his kind of grind. No. Um, uh, there's, there's not many races for these horses, so I guess you give it a spin. But I mean, if you put him back on a sound surface, you see a different horse. Um, but I mean, I, and as much as we're keeping praise on Palace Pier, you know, you've got to take into account Alpine Stars, run a mighty race to get within three parts of a length of them. Um, and, and she wasn't stopping at the end either. So, you know, kudos to her. There'll be easier opportunities.
1: Big time. Would you stay to a mile with her?
2: I guess, why not? Indeed, yeah. There's there's um, no particular rush to do anything else. I don't
1: think the uh, pre gallium. Let's leave it at that. Let's just stop there. Leave it there. Uh, the one thirty five Deville Saturday live on Sky Sports Racing. Mishrif really kicked off Frankie's week to a good start, winning and winning well. One hundred thirty five thousand in prize money. Um, the question really afterwards, Barry, was where next does he go? Champions Day, Irish Champion Stakes, Champion Stakes. Or do they continue this French love affair and go for the arc, which he's not actually entered in just yet?
0: Yeah, well, that's that's something they can rectify very easily. It can be supplemented to, to that. So I wouldn't be too concerned. He's... Uh, yeah, he's another exciting prospect since he won on the 6th of June the Beffer Exchange free bet streak stakes when he beat uh Vulcan star. And, and a, a stable mate. <laughs> that, that, ladies and stable, gentlemen. That just
1: rolled off the tongue. That is why Barry Orr, every time he comes on the show, the crowd go nuts. It's it's little moments like that. Little forward sells like that. Genius, genius.
0: Continue. If you remember, if you remember that day in Newmarket, Valkonig was a stable companion. It was mm. sent off 11 to 8 on, and he was meant to be, you know, he it was meant to be a race that would see him go on to bigger and better things. Alas, he only finished third that day. Vulcan Star was second, but that kind of marked him out as a nice horse. And he's just kept on improving again since. He's 12 from 16 for the arc. I'd love to see him go for the arc. I think that's the sort of race for him. Um, he obviously, it means stepping up, uh, it means stepping up to the to mile and a half but it's something that looks well within his uh well within his abilities and very exciting prospect it, it just seems john Gosden has a whole, whole host of horses um, you know uh, can i just say on on that point i um i spoke to
2: john briefly about this on sunday after the uh, marwa um because you know being on social media people were saying why isn't this horse in the ark baba and i mean he says well look i'll talk to the owner if they desperately want to go to the Ark, you can do that. We can talk about that, I think was what he said. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think I think John felt he was making enough of a sacrifice for his other owners by allowing Stradivarius into the Ark as you could take on a I don't know if he wants to necessarily go there with mischief as well. But, um, but he did point out, which is a fair point, that a mile and a half is really not in this horse's pedigree. Um, he's by make-believe out of a ravens past mare. Um I believe he was sort of a son of macfee um so i mean you would say sort of mile to ten furlongs on that uh, would look like the optimum um and and maybe going beyond to a mile and a half in if it's deep october going that might be pushing it a bit but he sort of he finished off the point by saying well look you know it, it might depend on whether this horse is going to stay in training or not if he does you could always stretch out to an arc
0: next year so that that's the trainer's thinking anyway that's the trainer trying to manage the owner's expectations. Exactly. Indeed. That's the hardest part of the There's game, isn't it? Difference. Never mind keeping the horses fit.
1: Can you imagine his reaction if Mishra was Mishriff was to go and win the arc and beats Enable by a short head? It's like, we planned this to perfection. We brought her back for one race and my own horse destroyed her. Uh, the, truth, the truth of the matter is, if it was in, in any other
0: yard in England or Ireland, it would probably be aimed at the arc.
1: Yeah. For sure.
0: It's just by virtue of being currently in Clare Haven is probably precluding them from going to the arc and talking about next year. Sure, we could all be dead this time next year. You know, like if you had a horse like him, you'd want to go for the biggest prize and that's in long in, uh, Shop in October.
1: Barry Orr, always looking on the positive side <laughs> on the final <laughs> I mean, four. Like anything can happen to
0: these horses. You know what I
1: mean? If he's fit and he's healthy point. and he's ready to run, run him. Well, let me ask you this, Barry. If Mishraff... Enable and Stradivarius were trained by Aidan O'Brien. Where would they be running in October? <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, yeah, they'd go there, wouldn't they? After taking in probably the Irish <laughs> Champion Stakes, I, th-
1: th- th- why wouldn't they? They'd go for the arc. They, he'd let yeah. them all go. He and it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter that there is a, a piece of history there. You you back the horse. I, I think that quote from from Christo is interesting. The quote that that Gosden gave you. Well, I suppose if they really really want to go then we can consider it but no uh so it it does appear as though he wants to stay to 10 furlongs the irish champion stakes would be ideal for him then champion stakes um i'd be disappointed chris if he doesn't line up in the arc
2: well you might just have to grin and bear it for this year i think because um john has a pretty good um record of getting his way in these discussions but um yeah, and, and then, you know, winnability comes into it as well. You know, you could um, go to the arc and run a mighty race and finish fourth, and, and you've band-jacked your chance of winning at Ascot. Um, so in the end, I would think that maybe at least for this year, he, you, you know, that horse is, is probably going to the Champion League.
1: What did you make of the performance overall? Victor Ladorum? well held in behind again, uh, and he's beaten the Summit, who he beat in the French Derby.
2: Uh, yeah, I think it's the same one, two, three, isn't it, from the yeah. French Derby? Um, so I mean he was fully entitled to do it um, and uh, you didn't have that question about ground with him because I think he won a Nottingham Maiden didn't he on a similar ground maybe not quite so bad um, oh, Nottingham Maidens you've got to love a good Nottingham Maiden for throwing up star potential nearly as good as the, the Newcastle All Weather um, nearly but so, not quite yeah. <laughs> well um, it's, it's hard for anywhere to match Newcastle All Weather at the moment in terms mm-hmm. of star making um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I wasn't particularly impressed by that performance. You could see it coming up a mile off, you know. And if if I was more of a favourite backer, I guess it would appeal to you more.
1: Barry, what was your assessment? Like, it is the one, two, three from the French Derby. Has he just repeated what he did, or did he enhance his credentials to you?
0: I thought he enhanced his credentials somewhat, given that the the ground was soft, and he, you know he's beaten the sum of four and a half lengths. And just Victor Lodrum for me, he's a funny one, isn't he? He just didn't seem to settle. Would you give him another chance? I don't. I just can't get a handle on him. And mm-hmm. um, he just seems very free in his races, and they they took him wide out of the back straight. And uh, just for me, I don't, I don't know. He went off like don't forget, he went off clear second favorite at six to four but a uh, very disappointing Victor Lodrum but I think in beating the Summit who's by Wooten Bassett who I'm sure we'll chat about later on mm-hmm. just having been purchased by Kilmore um, yeah I think he's upheld the form there and about, yeah he's, he's enhanced his win there for
1: sure Victor Lysorum is is an odd one uh, I'm a big fan of his but you're right Barry He's he gets very very keen early on in his races he's clearly a difficult ride and maybe the biggest endorsement that you can get from Misharif is that after he won the French Derby, Laurent came back on the show, our French friend, and he was almost disconsolate. It was, very, it was even difficult to just get him to come on the show after his beloved Victor Le Dorme had been beaten. I was in uh, bad form as well after that. Don't, let, don't get emotionally attached to bets, everybody. Um, but he was singing the praises of Misharif and wanted desperately to see him in the arc and even more yeah. impressed with him now. So to be fair to Laurent, he called it back then when he won the French Derby. He was very much of the view he's got. And and he looked at that race and thought, there's nothing in this field that can touch Victor Le which is why he was so crestfallen when it went horribly wrong. But the more that you you watch this horse, the more that his he just uh, enhances his credentials each and every time. And look, wherever he goes next, he's going to be a big, big player. But I would really like to see it, see him in the arc um, based on what <laughs> Barry clearly agrees with me, but based on what John Gosden has told Chris Cook, friend of the show, then we can forget about it basically, Chris and just, you we'll know, just pick up our toys and move on. Um, <laughs> there is no betting as of yet for the Irish champion stakes, or the champion stakes, Barry. No, not yet. Yeah. It's too much of a mess in fairness to try and work it all out. He, he'll be taking on, you'd imagine magical will line up. There'll be an awful lot of horses that he'll be taking on, irrespective of whether it's France, Ireland, or England he goes to. He's going to have to to top his game, but he's a big, big player. Uh, In the UK, in the Hungerford Stakes, at Newbury, Dream of Dreams, who was very confidently talked about by Roy Delargy on the show, won and won very, very easily, Barry, just the seven lengths over seven furlongs. Um, What was the story in the for Exchange, and what did you make of his performance for Rasheen Murphy and Sir Michael Stout?
0: Yeah, he, I thought it was a really nice performance. Any horse that wins seven lengths a, a Group Two, you know, it's a good performance, and and that's what that is. Um, uh, breathtaking look and symbolized. They, they're not really top class horses, uh, especially not for Group Two standard. They're rated, I think, one hundred and six and one hundred and five respectively. So he did what ratings rated 117 to winner Dream of Dreams. He did what you would expect. And he was back to Cordingley. He was a Beffer SP of two point eight six. He the highest he hit in running was two point eight eight. Since he got that cruelest cut, he's been uh, I think that's turned him inside out really in fairness to him. And he uh, we cut him on the sports book from ten to one into five to one for the Beffer Sprint Cup in Haydock. He interestingly he went off nine to two co-favourite last year with the winner. Hello Usain. And... Um, and he could only, I think he only managed to finish sixth in it last year. So uh, I think just having been gelded, though, he looks a different proposition this time round. Nice winner. Did, like I said, what you'd expect him to do, given uh, given his uh, superior rating to some of these. And uh, I suppose it's all systems go to Haydock now. Nice winner for O'Shea Murphy to have for Sir Michael Stout as well.
1: Yeah, and Sir Michael Stout in tremendous form too. Uh, he's obviously suffered a, a terrible personal loss and thoughts to him and his family and connections but dream of dreams is a horse that he's capable of it and as barry says chris the cruelest cut he's gelded now maybe he's just a little bit more focused that was a big run at ascot and this race was there for him to take if he could go and do it and he's done it very very well he deserves another crack now group one company
2: Uh, most definitely um i had that doubt about him because you know you look at his form last year and you know when he was also ahead second in the um uh Diamond Jubilee behind Blue Point um and then just did did not go on, you know, he was well beaten in the three subsequent starts last year. But they were all very hot races. Um and then Saturday's race was was by no means hot. Um I thought there was a case to be made for one or two others, but I think some horses that ran below expectations and and he's very much held his form in the way that he didn't really last year. it was quite impressive. And and you'd have to say the seventh furlong did him no harm. Um, I'm not sure that going back in trip is necessarily indicated. But um, there's obviously more opportunities at six.
1: Yeah, you would think that they'll give it another go uh, at six furlongs. But uh, his assistant trainer was saying that no plans are imminent. So we'll have to wait and see uh, what they do. But it does look as though they've they've got a handle on him now. Uh, meanwhile, at the Curra, we didn't get to talk about this. Um, the Phoenix Stakes because we were doing our show with Barry Geraghty. So we'll go back and discuss the Phoenix Stakes. Lucky Vega, a big win for Jessica Harrington, whose incredible season continues, uh, gets the better of uh, Aloha Star for the Stacks and the Learjet who came over for Michael Bell. Uh, St. Mark's Basilica was the best of the Aiden O'Brien horses. Uh, Barry, how impressed were you with Lucky Vega?
0: Yeah, I thought it was a good performance, um, quick and nicely. Put it to bed, obviously given three pounds to the filly a lowest star. The Learjet ran well. I think everything ran up. To, like I don't think there was any hard luck stories in the race. Obviously, Lucky Vega had been beaten in the railway by law of indices uh, a half a length, but turned that around in, in tremendous fashion and probably just needed the run, it's fair to say, in the in the railway stakes. Um, law, uh, Lucky Vega probably just needed that run and showed a benefit for it in, in the grade one and yeah, onwards and upwards with, with him for sure.
1: Chris, for you?
2: Yeah, extremely impressive. It was one of those races where you're thinking, God, this is bubbling up nicely. It's going to be real. Cool. Oh, that one's won. <laughs> and it just like, it's in the flick of a switch, it was over. Um, which was disappointing for the, the one, although lower star. Um, although I, she got demoted, didn't she, in the end, behind. The second horse, mm. uh, controversially. Uh, Steel Bull, I guess, would have excuses, didn't he? Um, smack his face on the starting stalls and, and knocked out three teeth. Um, and, you know, maybe to horses that matters less, but it would affect me if I was in a race. Um, and that was, it was only like 11 days after the Goodwood run, wasn't it? So I would say that you could probably put a line through and see what he does next. But um, that being said, you know, Lucky Vega, an impressive winner of a race where there were lots of bits of two-year-old form colliding, um, and he's come out way the best. Middle um, Park is going to be, retros-
1: in, yeah. The Middle Park is going to be next for him, Chris.
2: Yeah, well, right, you could absolutely see that. Um, uh, I guess it'd be faster surface. One, but I would have thought that would help him rather than anything else. And and you know, he was beaten the time before by the, the outsider, but in retrospect, you can make, excuse, make excuses. You know, that he was just a... Um, he's still a horse in the making um, and he's on the way now. I, w- I wouldn't want to be getting in
1: his way. Certainly not. Do you look at him as a potential classic winner? Like is the 2000 guineas on your mind for him right now?
2: Uh, now that we have the Commonwealth Cup and that sort of route for horses, um, I, I tend to be a bit suspicious of horses um, that are quite so zippy, you know, <laughs> um, you've got to go an extra two furlongs and, and there'll be specialist milers that, uh, he'll be bumping into in the spring next year. If we're all spared, um, I would have thought he's, he's a kind of, uh, he, he'd be a pretty good candidate for sprinting next year as well.
1: On paper Barry going into it, it, it was a strong race. You had the one, two from the railway, the one, two from the pre Robert Papan, the Norfolk winner. We had the, the Malcolm winner as well. Um, Lucky Vega, I know there was controversy in behind, but Lucky Vega does seem to be the best of them, and the middle park seems like the right idea. In terms of going forward, if you do want to dip your toe into the anti-post market, the Commonwealth Cup that Chris suggests would be where I'd be leaning as well right now.
0: Yeah, he's interestingly, he's quoted in the, obviously, the 2000 Guineas betting. He's a 16th of one chance for that. Uh, Commonwealth Cup is not a race that would be offered uh, just now. At the moment, it's not something that um, bookmakers would uh, would have up at this stage considering, you know, it's towards the end of the season when we see what looks like it's going to be uh, sprinters and what looks like it's going to get further. And um, that market will kind of form and even into next year, to be perfectly honest which it really doesn't hot up the Commonwealth Cup till after the guineas. And you get to hear what's going to drop back in trip as opposed to uh, staying at a mile or even even going up in trip. So, yeah, it's not a market that you could be, that you could have a bet in now, not on Betfair anyway. And it's not something I think he'll, have, there's no doubt he'll get a mile in time. I um, And I think Jessica Harrington is very much of that opinion as well.
1: Every now and again, you get a horse like 10 sovereigns. Caravaggio, who looks ideal for that trip. And if Aidan O'Brien comes out and says, we're going to go sprinting with him next season, then that's fair enough. But if you're just guessing now, there's very little point in having a bet in, in the Commonwealth Cup as things stand. Um, the horse who finished last, Admiral Nelson, he looked like he was going to be an absolute superstar. And he was the horse that Jeff Stafford got in the Final Furlong Podcast, Aidan O'Brien fan Lucky Dip Traw, and the £440,000 look to be well spent. He's just regressing and regressing and regressing. Um, second last he was here. This this was bitterly disappointing from him, Barry.
0: Yeah, it was. What can you say you, that you've already said? It was a very disappointing run. And he's a horse that seems to be going the opposite direction. He's let let them down a couple of times now. and Unless there's an excuse for him that something's amiss, uh he's not the horse that maybe uh, people
1: thought he was. There's a few of those Aidan O'Brien juveniles this season. We'll have to see. Uh, Chief Littlehawk continues to break our hearts. In the listed race at the current over five furlongs, he took on Frenetic. Now, to be fair, he was taking on a proper filly here. um, And he did get somewhat close, but unfortunately the follow the Air Force Blues advice from Aidan may not be something that we'll be doing for much longer. Um, Frenetic is being talked about, or at least was being talked about as a horse who would head to York. that didn't quite come to play, but she's fast, Barry.
0: Yeah, she's a little rocket, isn't she? She really is great. When she beat um, Monista that day in the Curve back in June, um, and she broke and she raced by herself on the stand side, uh, that really marked her out as, a, as as a real speed machine. And I think they were talking then potentially that they could go to York with her. Uh, obviously two-year-old Philly getting all the allowances I think she'd be in with something like eight stone or even less than that but had her pocket dipped in the cura after that uh, Aloha Star who didn't let the form down obviously in the Phoenix and then second again to Miss Amulet probably ran her back a bit fast um, that day but she she did it really really nicely uh, when she beat Chief Little Hawk in the cura in in, in this race now I know it's only a listed race but and she was getting the two pounds off Chief Little Hawk but yeah, I, I, she's a really, really nice filly, just out in front, so uncomplicated. Just jump out, go as fast as you can. There's the winning line, and uh, yeah, they're going to have a lot of fun with her for sure. Just a pity she's not going to go to York. I don't think any of the juveniles. After it looked like at one stage, to, potentially could have been maybe two or three juveniles run in York in the uh, in the non-torque. but unfortunately, none of them are making the lineup now, and I think the race is uh, is a, is a lot less for it.
1: Yeah, well, it goes to what you were saying, that if the horse is fitting well, roll the dice now. So maybe that's a John Gosden, roll the dice in the Ark of Mishriff. We're holding on to that. Roll the dice this year. Um Frenetic is a proper speedball, Chris.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And great to see her get back to winning ways, um, albeit it was a good opportunity. Um And, um you know, real to help and all of that. But, I mean, you know, I, she... You know a horse is good when she's just bowling along in front like that and it's halfway and the others are working hard um, just to kind of stay on terms. Um, she's fun to watch.
1: We had Armory winning his first race since the Futurity Stakes last year for Shamie Heffernan. Uh, his quote was, he's got me out of trouble and he was the best horse in the race. He's got lots of class. Where do you see him going next, Barry?
0: Well, wow what uh, well, that was he stepping up to a mile two, and he showed good improvement for it. Um, I suppose something like if they want to stay at a mile two, you, you've got to be looking at something like the Irish Champion Stakes, maybe, uh, yeah. or if they drop him back to a mile, maybe something um, that could race in, on Irish Champion Stakes weekend as well. The is it the Clipper Logistics? Yeah, the Boomerang is over a mile, but yeah, I, I think he's improved for the step up and trip myself. Uh, And I think that mile two is where his future lies, or even further, he's the son of Galileo, obviously. Uh, I don't imagine he's going to be dropping back to a mile. I think definitely uh, plenty of improvement in in him uh, the further they go.
1: High Chaparral, famous name and found took this race back in the day. High Chaparral definitely won the Irish champion stakes that season. Uh, I think that um, found did as well that same year. So it's a, it's a tried and tested route for Aidan O'Brien. The 10 furlongs does look to be ideal for him now, Chris.
2: Definitely, yeah. And um, you know, I don't know if he's one of those horses where they're just, I think they were casting about for an opportunity to get his head back in front and it only just worked out. Um, but was it previous five races it had all been group ones? Mm. Um, and he was uh, he sort of helped give with that amazing rating, didn't he, last year by chasing him home. In the, in the national stakes. Um, so, you know, they've obviously had that kind of top-class ambition for him for a long time. Of course, you would with his freedom. Um, but, I mean, definitely pitch him into the Irish champion stakes now. Why not? Um, you get the surf. Uh, it's usually decent surf, isn't it, for that kind of race? Um, the weather hasn't gone by that stage, so um, who knows what Aidan has in mind, but uh, he'd be a contender for me.
1: Well, right now, it is lashing rain, but there is... 81% humidity in Ireland. It's too much. I can't bear it. It's, it's unbearable. It's too much. But if the ground stays uh, by the time we get to the Irish Champions stakes, he'd be interesting. He's obviously going to have to face much deeper quality of opposition, but given his pedigree, give it a go. Um, Barry Orr was sending WhatsApp messages to Chris and I on the 13th of August, telling us all to get stuck in and to know no fear to have as much as we want. Mm -hmm. Just go up to, go online, go on the app, find a bookmaker, wear your face mask and have no fear with He Knows No Fear. Historic 300 to one winner. And there were so many people who'd backed him on Twitter, Barry.
0: Oh, they came out of Woodwork, didn't they? (laughs) I tell you one thing: you're not going to have a very long. You keep backing that man's horses. That's <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Luke. I know that's unfair to me because Jim Gorman, very very good trainer, um, if he has the right material. But no, it's it's one of those things, isn't it? It's going to be a quiz question for years to come. He knows no fear. Um, a, a, a Industry SP of three hundred a beffer SP of one thousand. Also traded at a thousand in running, and the runner-up traded at the basement price of uh, 1.01, 100 to 1 on. So oh. it was uh, a bit unfortunate for for his in-running backers. But not unusual for a bet for a SP of 1,000. It has to be said, there's at least six of them that I've historically gone through and with the help of some people on Twitter have eked out. Most recent one was Lady Heath back in January of this year and down Royal. At a bet for SP of a thousand. So not massively unusual on the exchange, but uh, unusual to see a horse returned at 300 to one in Ireland. Now, obviously, no on course bookmakers. So the shows are done through an amalgamation of off the of course firms um, a non-course bookmaker would be quite reticent to put 300 to to any horse uh, for a whole myriad of reasons but obviously whether you go 33 to 1 or 300 to 1 you're not going to get a brass rizzo out of them on course um, for, for some of those guys like I know David Power always thought it was um, it was disrespectful to owners to put 20 to uh, twenty above 20 to 1 to any of their horses oh that was his so he, excuse was it well, that yeah, yeah. <laughs> he he just thought it was uh, a lot of owners would have punted with him back in the day, and he just thought that was uh, that was an insult to them paying training fees to price their horse above well, twenty to one. <laughs> well, hold on, well, have they been tra-
2: been paying training fees for twenty months, lining
0: up for this gamble? And uh, hey, who does that then, Chris? There's no such thing as gambles anymore. Yeah, Chris. Right, right. What are you?
1: What exactly are you insinuating, Chris? <laughs>
2: Clean sport. Everyone's trying all the time.
1: Everybody. everybody. Yeah, yeah. Everybody. We'll, we'll touch on this later on, but Jamie Heffernan wouldn't have any of it anyway. It'd be a bad look for the sport. A bad look for the sport if we were seen not to be trying. Um, Three hundred to one, Chris. I think he's actually the biggest price in Ireland and the UK.
2: Uh, I'm sure he is, yeah. It was Equinocto, wasn't it? It was the previous record. and Well, it's still the record in Britain um, in that sort of kelso Novice hurdle about like 30 years ago. Um, I, but you do see more horses at um, SPs at bigger prices these days, don't you? Because of the Betfair effect, I think. Um, you know, if these on-course, well, they, again, on-course bookies are not implicated this time, but, but generally speaking, in normal times, um, you know, on-course bookies are able to go in the machine and, and lay off bigger, you know, Five hundred to one, a thousand to one. Those exchange punters—they um, don't um, care about offering a big price if they think the thing can't win—and um, that helps to sort of lift the SPs in some of these cases. Um, and uh, you know, it's great to read that the um, stable lad went in with both feet backing this horse. I think it was, he had a hundred euro each way, me, um, and uh, was found by the Daily Mirror, I think it was, who had quotes from him. Because um, he'd fancied the horse the first time and was a bit disappointing, obviously, but felt the ability was still there. So uh, there were quite a few people sort of having pennies and you know up to two fifty euro each way on He Knows No Fear. Um, but then there was this guy who would walked into a betting shop in Dublin and had a hundred euro each way on him, and uh, evidently they stood the bet. God love him.
1: Somebody got kind of
2: bet people. People don't imagine you can get that kind of bet on anymore these days.
1: Forty-eight thousand euro. That's that's not bad for a day's work. That's not I, bad. I
2: think it worked out
1: at 36,000 because it's a fifth the odds, wasn't it, for a place? Oh, jeez. He lost 10k. Uh, <coughs> the, the thing is, though, if he's doing that bet on a regular basis, he probably needs that 36,000 to be fair. But listen, well well done to him. Well done to him. What a, what a result.
2: Maybe the first time in his life he's bet more than five euro each way.
1: Well, well done to him. Well done to him. Uh, we're not better at all here on the final Furlong podcast, not in the slightest bit. And there was a hundred to one winner winner in uh, Windsor today as we're recording. Um, speaking of bookmakers returning to the track, that's going to happen this week, um, Barry. It's happening in the UK. Don't entirely know what the plan is for Ireland, but again, they won't be able to handle cash. It'll have to be done by card. Some of them are. No,
0: I think they are allowed to handle
1: cash. Are they? Are they? That's been cash. changed.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, ideally card uh, transactions, but there is um, they are allowed to handle cash, yeah.
1: Well, now I'm getting confused as to how this whole thing is going to work. So they can handle cash. What kind of a crowd will they be met with? And there are some who are saying they're very excited about this, but how much business can they really expect to do, Barry?
0: Not very little, I would imagine, considering it's just a selection of owners are going to be in attendance and industry people, really. So... Um, But it's just good that they're setting the precedent and they're getting them back on course and they're looking at at checks and balances and procedures, have them in place ahead of maybe when larger crowds are allowed return to race courses. So it's a starting point, and I think that's very positive because there's such an important part of the race day experience uh, in England and Ireland on course bookmakers, and a thriving or a strong betting ring is something that's, you know, if you bring someone to the races for the first time it just memorizes them it, it really is just such a spectacular place to be uh, a, a, in a vibrant betting ring where there's a bit of action going on and uh, and it's something that's very important to to that race day experience so hopefully they'll all be back on course soon as with crowds
2: this i think it's nearly ideal that um actually they'll have such a small number of customers to cope with, um, I mean, not ideal for them in trading terms. But I don't think any of the bookies who are taking part in this trial view this as, you know, any kind of financial saviour. Um, what we're doing is this is the very first small building block back towards what we used to have. Um, and I, I think, as I say, from the racecourses' perspective, what you really don't want when you start having bookies again um, is queues forming and people standing next to each other for even you know, long periods of time. Um, so. So, yeah, okay, maybe they won't have much custom, but the point is that we'll establish the principle that you can have bootmakers back at the race courses taking bets um, and, you know, with social distancing, um, face masks being used, um, you know, hand disinfectant available, um, and and it'll work, hopefully, and and everyone will be able to see that it can work, it can be controlled. um, And over the course of the next two weeks, you know, that's the point that I think they're hoping to, to establish. Um, and then, you know, it can grow from there. Um, and I think psychologically for a lot of these bookmakers that, you know, that's the important thing because particularly the race course, we're, we're beginning to feel completely forgotten. You know, we, the rest of racing has been back for a couple of months and they're still s- sitting on the sidelines, sucking their thumbs, you know, wondering how their businesses are going to survive.
1: It's been a huge question mark and a huge problem. I do wonder, though, how you enforce social distancing. I guess it's going to be easier if there's a a relatively small crowd and it's just owners that you have to deal with. But you have cash, which was the the big hiccup for a lot of people, was how are you going to manage a betting ring with, with cash or without it? So that's now allowed. And if a bookmaker is deciding to go two to one about a horse that's 11 to eight because he just wants the business, people aren't going to queue in an orderly manner because that's not how the betting ring works. You just go, and people are almost elbowing each other and kicking their friends out of the way to try and get their bet on. But that's not, it's, it's a-
0: Such is the number of people that are in attendance. I don't think you're going to have any mad rush like that to, to get on. And uh I don't see that being an issue. Like Chris says, you know, it's all about just incremental steps. And this is the first step on, a, on the journey for bookmakers to return to a race course. So um, it's just making sure everything's in place and that, you know, when people are placing a bet that they are observing social distance, there's good, you know, etiquette um, around COVID procedures that are in place. And it's, it's just the first small step on that road. And to some extent, I think it's, it's optics, isn't it? It's being able to say to
2: people outside the game, well, look, you know, we've been doing this now for a couple of weeks and, it, and it's worked fine. There's been uh, no consequences, been no complaints, you know, no no one's been phoned up by Track and Trace to say that they, um, they caught it, you know, when they were having a bet at the races. Um, and so, you know, from this small beginning, you can hope to build... To something bigger, you know. Next, um, by the time you get to October, when we're getting small amounts of crowds back at the races,
1: that's a good point. O- almost more importantly, though, is the return of owners because that's been that's been really a big issue for a lot of trainers. Uh, there is one thousand eight hundred plus horses out of training that should be in training for the flat. Currently in the UK, uh, I don't have the Irish number to hand, but that's quite high as well. Uh, prize money has been a massive issue but if you're telling an owner I don't, there's nothing we can do about this your prize money is badly affected but also you can't have the race day experience that's quite tough for, for owners and at the very least if they can socially distance on a track and get to see their horse in the parade ring get to chat to their trainer and their jockey beforehand you're giving them that that's really why you get involved in the sport you certainly don't get involved in horse racing to earn money as an owner unless your name is Coolmore because it's it's not going to happen. Like It's as simple as that. You do this because it's a passion and an interest, and you get to be on the inside of it. And that is quite an important thing to be able to allow owners get back, Chris.
2: Yes, um, and it seems that there is quite a wide difference in the, the experience that people are getting as owners at tracks um, you know, in these difficult times. And, and you can understand why some tracks are you know, wary of spending money, um, but I think the bottom line is it's you know it's never been more important to, to show owners a good time when they turn up at races. races. Um, I was reading on Mark Johnson's uh, website that um, Chester were getting a lot of praise from his owners for their return to action at the beginning of this week. Um, apparently, the, you know, owners who we went there felt they were very well looked after and made to feel like they mattered, um, and. Uh, it, Now more than ever, you know that kind of best practice. I think it really has to be shared around the rest of the industry, Um, and there needs to be some kind of effort from the centre to make sure that all tracks are, you know, at least aiming at a a similar kind of standard. Um, Because you know you just can't afford um, for owners to be making the effort to go racing in these times and and feeling like. You know, they're being treated like lepers and, and they're, you know, they're an awkward presence. They just make things difficult for the organisers because, you know, anyone who leaves the racing after an experience like that and decides to cut their losses and get out of the sport, you know, that's, that's going to make life very difficult for the whole of the sport going forward.
1: Yeah, we need owners, Barry. We need them badly and we need to look after them and to ensure that they are getting the right experience on track, now that it is being slowly reintroduced. Uh, the the f- Being acted or feeling like you're being treated like a leper is how Sally Ann Grassick described it when she was on the show. She had come back from Cheltenham, and her boyfriend didn't want her going near the house. It was as though she was going to, to bring Rona with her. Um, and, and people that she'd meet up when she was going into town, to be like, no, get away from me. You, you were over there at Dash at Cheltenham. How dare you? Don't be bringing your cooties over here. Um, and, and she was saying she was really taken aback by by the reaction she got and and how people were, were acting to her. Um, and we do need to, uh, Sean Boyce was talking about this in the racing debate on on Sunday, we need to be able to to do as much as we can for trainers that owners are being properly looked after because they're a vital part of our sport. And if they're not properly looked after, if you think it's bad now, it's going to get even worse.
0: Yeah, everyone's a vital part of the sport. Trainers are a vital part. Jockeys are a vital part. You know, but the real vital part without a shadow of a doubt is the owners. Uh, they, without them, it's the house of cards just comes falling down. And yeah, they need to be looked after uh, as much as possible. And within this, within this epidemic, they have, I think, both. Especially in the UK, the BHA and, and the various bodies have done their best within the very strict confines they've had to operate. I think they've done a a fairly decent job in trying to I know there has been instances where some owners' lounges were way down at a furlong marker and you know um the service that that they were getting was questionable in some cases, but I think that varies from track to track. Inevitably, outside of the uh, even outside of the uh, epidemic, you had some courses that um, weren't particularly good with owners, and other ones that are particularly good with owners. So, uh, at the end of the day. I, It's a very fine balancing act, but the more owners that you're able to get to a race meeting and to enjoy that race day experience, and there's a few bookmakers back on course in York now, the more that it feels like maybe we're returning to something of normality within the racing game, although within reason, Um, and yeah, I think that's very, very important.
1: There's no vaccine for COVID-19. That's the simple, harsh reality of this, and the BHA and HRI have to confront that reality. There's all kinds of different statistics are thrown out to the point that I'm actually fed up with them. We're stuck with this, and we have to be able to figure out a way that we can all get on with our lives while dealing with it. And that includes getting the sport back up and running. But I don't see, I don't envisage you or I, Barry, as fans going to the Curra. Or Leopardstown, I don't see that happening for us this year.
0: If that's if that's the case, um, it's so be it. So be it. We're well served by the by the various racing channels. Agreed. Um, are there's there's great coverage terrestrial TV as well, be it on ITV or RTE. So if it's part of a bigger picture whereby we are ensuring like I think the only safer return to normality is if there's a vaccine I don't want to go down this rabbit hole but at the end of the day you know there are more important things to worry about here and whether me or you are able to attend a race meeting is definitely by the by taking a bigger picture into consideration if we can't get there hopefully we can because I'm sure the authorities both in the UK and Ireland are keen to get punters back on course get you know people earning money who depend on on attendances at race courses for their living be it bar concessions or food concessions and i'm sure it's in everyone's best interest to have uh, it is in everyone's best interest to have people attend race courses so once it's it's we're clearly and able to do that while you know working within ever guidelines are going to be set out, well, then I'm sure they're keen to get punters back on course. But if it doesn't happen this side of Christmas, so be it.
1: I said it a few months ago, Chris, that it was Caroline Mert who was on the show with me at the time. And I said, I, I don't envisage either of us going onto a race course this year. And I'm okay with that. And a lot of Final Furlong podcast listeners have been asking via email and DM, like, do you see us being able to return to the course before the end of the year? And I just don't. I, I really don't, and I'm not going to patronize anybody or or placate to the audience and try and be like, ah, oh, no, it's, a, you know, it's all fine. I don't see that changing, and Barry's right. We've got great coverage. We've got two dedicated racing channels. We've got two terrestrial channels covering it. We're well catered for, but the race day experience is great, but we're living in a Rona world right now, and we need to deal with that, and, and for me, getting owners on course is more of a priority than me being allowed to go to the cura and watch um an interesting maiden i'll accept the fact that i'm not going to go until the dublin racing festival for example and be okay with that given the circumstances that the sport is in
2: well uh, it's it's uh, as i wrote in my copy the other day it's not a great time for optimists um but um you, you can only be guided by uh, the decisions made on high. I must say my faith in um, governments making the right decision has not gone up during this period. No, but, uh, but you're left with no option. Uh, you know, speaking personally, you know, whenever I go out into sort of areas where people are going to be, you know, shops or so on, I wear the mask quite happily. Um, and and you feel like you're, you're hopefully doing your bit to, um, to contain it that way. Um but the, the situation in Britain, anyway, is you know, at the moment we're expecting that from the first of October there may be some limited return of crowds at sporting events. Um, maybe when we get nearer to that, it will be kicked down the tracks again. Um, but you know, for now, there's there's certainly some hope that some people will be able to, to get back towards the end of the year, and just all of us are obviously hoping that um, situation improves to the point where that remains possible um, and, the, and that in fact, it does not get worse as winter approaches because that's just such a dismal prospect. I don't even want to think about it,
1: you know? Yeah. It just, it has to be said. That's the sad thing about it is that we, we have to address it, but let's get owners back and then hopefully we can get back and maybe have a final Furlong podcast day out at the races and be able to enjoy it. Socially distancing, of course, maybe to not, maybe Donald Trump is going to announce they've got it. They've got the cure and it's available to everybody for free. If he can broker... Let's not
2: pin our hopes on, on the, the Donald, please.
1: Well, if he can broker peace between Israel and the UAE, then, you know, let's give him some bit of credit. Maybe he can do this as well, but probably not. He'll probably just want to make his old drink bleach again. Um, Julie Harrington is going to be the new chief executive of the BHA. What a time, Julie, what a time to, to come on board. Uh, so, so the search has been on for a while, and... Um, all I've read about Julie is good. Everybody seems to have really uh, nice things to say about her and are very impressed with her managerial style. Um, she's going to have some tough tasks, though. Uh, she takes up the position from Nick Rust on the 3rd of January, Chris. Um, what do you want to see her get stuck into to change most quickly, and, and what do you make of the announcement?
2: Uh-huh. Um uh, let's let's do, take that last point um it, the announcement I guess is not surprising because their name was in the frame more or less from the outset I, th- I think initially they priced it up um whoever it was that was offering odds I can't remember um you know l- loads of familiar names at the top including like guys like Matt Chapman and so on you were never even going to be remote um, <laughs> sort of done, done for laughs you know and the and then on about
1: the chief executive of the VHA Matt Chapman Jesus Christ no.
2: And then on about day three, when someone's obviously been watching who goes in the door at 75 High Holborn, um, suddenly Julie Harrington moved from 25 to 1 to the four or something like that um, because she'd obviously been in for an interview. Uh, she's, you know got very um, uh, sort of eye-popping CV. And if you're looking for a, a chief exec of a sports regulatory body, because um, she doesn't just have a sort of long background in racing. She was MD at the Topster and she was, um, she's had other senior positions in race course groups. Um, And she was on the BHA board for years. Um, But then she went off to football and she managed, you know, Wembley Stadium as part of her role there. Um, And uh, then she's been chief executive of British Cycling for the last three years. Uh, I I think the story of British Cycling has not been a sort of unqualified success by any means um, during the time that she's there. But, I mean, she's only been there three years. And, uh, you know, it's a fair question um, whether you could ascribe any of the sort of difficulties to her tenure. I'd, I'd say not. Um, but that's always the issue, isn't it, with um, people who come in to, your, um, to run your sport and then disappear after a short time. You know, What Im- impact can they hope to have um, in, in just a couple of years um, when they're dealing with problems that are entrenched? So, um, I mean, she's going to have an entry like no chief executive in racing has ever faced um, because the sport finances are in a parlous condition. At a time when everybody's finances are in a parlous condition, um, and you know when you look for new sponsors for major races like the Derby, um, it's going to be really, really, really difficult to find somebody who's prepared to spend now on the scale that you need. Um, and that's just you know that's just one thought that comes to the top of my head about in terms of um, races that need money and backing. Um, uh, I there was this just some background chatter that. Um, it might have taken a bit of time to persuade her to take on the role, um, just looking at the amount of time that's gone by since the initial interviews for the post. I think Nick um, suggested in January, didn't he, that he was going to step down. Mm-hmm. So it's been a very long process, but obviously you know, with all the difficulties this year, maybe that's the full explanation, you, you, know, you don't know. I, I think it would be perfectly understandable why any external candidate would take a lot of talking into taking a role like this. Um, one thing that interests me is that we really do seem to have got into the habit of um, taking our chief executive from outside the BHA. Um, that was true for uh, Paul Bitter, wasn't it? came from Australia. Nick Coward before him came from football. Nick Rust obviously from betting. Um, and there were a couple of pretty strong internal candidates this time, as I think there are most times. Um, the thinking seems to be that you know, it's difficult for those guys to match up when you get a sort of really interesting kind of glamorous candidate from a, a, from somewhere else, because, you know, that's the sort of the horse with all the upside and the starry potential, um, and you're sort of comparing them with people that you know well, um, and you know their strengths and their weaknesses, and it's hard for them to sort of shine to the same extent. Um, but at least what could be said in, in Julie's favour is that there is no question of her um, taking time to sort of bed in and get to know the game. You know, she's had her, she already had a long and thorough grounding in horse racing. Um, and by the time she comes in in January, um, she, you know, she'll know the the brief backwards and forwards. So there'll be no sort of months spent doing the rounds, getting to know people and shaking hands and asking questions. Um, so, you know, it's a huge job and and really all of us, um, have to have her fingers crossed that she can do an absolutely amazing um, piece of work.
1: Here, here. You've summed up brilliantly there. Just the difficult, the difficult timing of the task for Julie as well. Um, Barry, your reaction to her appointment?
0: Um, I don't really have a reaction. To be perfectly honest with you, would what I know about her is all that I've read in, in, in the racing post. And I thought I saw a quote from her saying she feels like she's coming home. So I think that's good that she's she'll be on top of her brief straight away. And she obviously has a keen knowledge and understanding of racing, which is eminently important. Uh, I think there's a good team already in place in the BHA to support her. Uh, and I'm sure they'll do that. And it's a very challenging time for her. There's a lot going on in racing at the moment. And um, it's a very, very difficult time it's a very difficult appointment to BHA because you're a power broker, but you have very little power um, mm. to a certain extent within that organization. And there's so many different uh, moving parts at the moment and they all seem to be moving away from each other uh, in terms of common ground and in terms of a common goal. And, um, and I don't know whether she's the, whether it sits with her to try to pull that all together and get racing going in the right direction. Um, if it doesn't, and that responsibility is abdicated to someone else, well, then I don't know what success looks like for, for Julie Harrington.
1: That, uh,
2: that is something that's said to be a strong point for her, is that you know she's a really good people person. She can get people with disparate interests onto the same page, um, collaborating on a project and sort of looking in the same direction. Um, I mean, whether it's within anybody's abilities to to sort of draw together all the factions in in horse racing um, and get them moving forward together towards a common goal. Um, It's never been done yet, you know, but there's still hope.
1: We'll have to see how it all plays out, but it's a it's a massive task for her and no doubt that uh, the criticism will fall her way very quickly from the horsemen and others if things don't start to turn. Uh, But right now, she is being warmly welcomed back to the sport. And to me, she seems like the right person. All, I've, all I can go on is what I've read from people I respect and they all sing her praises. So uh, interesting, but a very, very difficult time for racing. Speaking of difficult time, Lee Motter said, was writing today in the trade paper, how can racing continue to take money from Phoenix thoroughbreds given the questions that are asked? Well, why are Phoenix thoroughbreds still in action in the UK? Because last week, Chris, a week ago, They announced that they were ceasing all operations in the UK, effective immediately. (laughs) They've got runners scheduled for the week, and they've been banned from racing in France. This story continues to go on and on and on, and it all stems back to a court case in New York, which Phoenix thoroughbreds deny all involvement, but they have now been banned from racing in France. They feel, essentially, their, their quote was... They were blaming uh, an independent media outlet that could only be one, and that's the trade paper, for unfair treatment, and that's why they were leaving the UK. But th- they're still there. Uh, and France Gallo are the only racing jurisdiction to take a stance against them and ban them. This is a very, very messy situation, Chris.
2: It is really messy, um, particularly because the BHA began by saying that they would uh, conduct sort of an investigation. And, you know, this was back in November. At the very moment when the news broke, and then they've subsequently said that, um, that you know, having asked some questions, uh, this is a matter that can only be taken forward by the relevant legal authorities. You know, they don't have the power or the authority to to actually do anything. Um, uh, and in fairness to all concerned you know, there hasn't been so much as a polite request from the FBI for somebody to come and cooperate with their inquiries. You know, as far as we know, there is no legal authority pursuing this subject. Um, And so you can see their point, the BHA, you know, um, I I think speaking in general terms, um, I wish they were, you know, a bit more investigative and, uh, you know, a bit more willing to take responsibility for what goes on in horse racing. but in this particular case, you know, maybe it's it's just an issue that's beyond their their powers. Certainly, that's what one or two of the trainers who work for Phoenix have been saying. You know. um, but equally then, you know, Martin Mead, who's obviously stopped training for Phoenix, when I spoke to him back in November, you know, after this news came like a bolt from the blue, um, he was saying, you know, the confidence we take is from the BHA allowing owners into horse racing. we you know, we we imagine that the BHA have done thorough diligence um, on these owners. And once they sort of allow them to register and come into the game and start throwing huge sums of money around, that's because the background checks have been done and there's no questions to be asked. And, you know, nothing like this is going to happen. Um, so, you know, maybe that's the stage, the initial stage, when people come into the game at which um, these checks have to be done in a really sort of thorough um, fashion to make sure that uh, there are no problems. Um, that being said, uh, you know, nothing has been proved against Amir Abdulaziz or Phoenix. And, and at the moment, there's no legal authority who's even offering to try to prove anything against them. Um, and they continue to have runners, as you say. I mean, uh, they, they did say in their press release we're, we're quitting Britain with immediate effect. But that has no uh, impact in terms of the regulation of the sport. You know, they're not, just because they've said that the, you know, there's no steward or there's no official anywhere who's going to hold them to it. Um, and the reality is that they, they keep entering horses and running them. Um, and I think we've got one in the Ebor, Um mm. So it looks like that's going to carry on.
1: Yeah, nobody from the BHA is going to step up and say, hang on a second, you said you're quitting, therefore you're gone. That That's not the way it works. And to be fair to the BHA, if they're going to be criticized, well then so should the United Arab Emirates, Australia, America, and indeed Ireland. Because... We haven't done anything about them.
2: Amar Abdulaziz has been asked in the past, including on Luck on Sunday last year, you know, where does the money come from? Um, And again, in horse racing, you know, maybe we're not um, as good as we should be asking questions like that. But anyway, um, so he went on that show and and Lucky asked him. um, And he says, well, look, you know, uh, uh, after the... My investors, um, but if anybody is looking to invest in the business, they can come here to buy and we'll take them to my office and we can go through the books together. And, you know, any, um, I think he said since then that, you know, any regulatory body that wants to um, inquire more closely, he's available. Um, But the BHA has rules to enforce along the lines of, you know, you, you can't lay your own horse and that kind of thing. How can they do that properly if? Phoenix has investors and the BHA doesn't know who they are. Um, I would have thought a base point for any group like Phoenix trying to get into racing um, is that the BHA should want to know who the investors are behind an organization like that. Um, And without that knowledge, you know, which, which doesn't have to necessarily be disseminated any more widely than the BHA, but if they don't know who the investors are, how can they enforce their own rules?
1: That's an excellent question. That is an excellent point to make. Um, from what we understand, France have uh, banned Phoenix and the affiliated Phoenix Ladies, ladies Syndicate, if I could use my mouth words correctly, Ladies Syndicate, there's one for Final Forum Podcast Bingo, due to concern over the source of their funds. So the French have, have a concern. But again, this, this story gets so mangled because the French have not confirmed why they have banned them, just that they have. They're not allowed to enter horses there but they're not commenting on it at time of recording. So it, it's so odd. It's such an odd, odd story. Um, and another
2: complicating factor is they don't have horses in France, Phoenix. They, don't, they haven't got any horses trained there. So you don't know if Francois's willingness to act is, is related to that or you know, would they have done something different if there were horses in stables around France.
1: That's a very good but point as well. It's
2: hard to know.
1: Mm would they police as heavily day. would they police as heavily if their own coffers were being badly affected
2: well uh, I, I didn't I want to put it in, in those bold terms but um, <laughs> you know it it, does, it it obviously affects how you you deal with the situation if there are other issues but uh, uh, you know uh, uh, as of yet we're still guessing exactly what the what action means
1: well, a number of high-profile people have cut ties with them and uh, it was some UK trainers that entered horses in France, and they were not allowed. So we'll see how all of this transpires and plays out. Um, former member of this parish wrote a, an article for AtTheRaces.com. The Racing Post then picked it up and decided not to quote at the races in any of their, was it seven pages? Was it five and seven pages, uh, which really annoyed some of the ATR team. I don't understand this, because the Racing Post get very precious if you don't mention them. So how it can be ITV's Kevin Blake when that's not where he wrote about this, nor is it where he really talked about it in detail. He wrote about it for At The Races. That's where the article is. He's an award-winning writer for At The Races. Give them their due. Just mention them. You're not hurting anybody by doing that, but for some reason they won't anyway. That's a bugbear of mine for obvious reasons. Um, But Kevin has has written, uh, brilliantly written article about interference rules. At the time, I was in agreement, and I think a day after Kevin wrote that, the Rab Havlin incident came along, and I was one of the people who was very quick to criticise Rab, and thought that he was lucky to be getting ten, and should have got twenty, and that he was a bit extreme to be going and appealing it. Well, I was wrong, because Rab Havlin is a very experienced jockey who. Uh, made the appeal, and his appeal was upheld. And a number of jockeys have spoken about this, Danny Mullins, on this very show. And Oshin Murphy was talking to Lydia Hislop last week, and then Shami Heffernan with an even more explosive interview with Kevin O'Ryan really expressing their frustration, particularly Shami. Um, so the question I have for you, Chris, is, has this situation been explained properly enough or has it been oversimplified to try and get the point across? Because the BHA have commented on it and essentially have said, yeah, we're not changing anything. We'll monitor it, but we're not changing anything. That's been the stance in Ireland as well. And when you see Oisin Murphy and Shamie Heffernan, and indeed Danny Mullins, um, say what they've had to say, are we looking at this from the right perspective? Or is there an oversimplification to try and get the message out there to the audience, when in actual fact, this is an incredibly complex set of rules where there is it's not black and white there is an awful lot of gray
2: i don't think the rules are that complex <clears throat> there it, it's you know in applying them that things get difficult because there are always shades of gray and um you even when you're looking at a replay and you can see what a jockey is doing you, you can't know what's in his head which seems to be um you know, that has to have some relevance in terms of his penalty um I don't think the BHA have ruled out um, change. They they, they might have no immediate plans, but I think they are a bit frustrated by things like um, having successful appeal, being uh, quite a high success rate. The appeals against interference penalties imposed by Race Day Stewart. But I was quite convinced by Paul Struthers explaining that he and the PJA's lawyers uh, get lots of requests from jockeys to appeal against bans imposed by stewards. And it's not like they say yes to all of them. In fact, they say yes to quite a small percentage. Um, And so, you know, there's a conscious effort to narrow down the the number of cases they take forward. And that's why they have such success at at appeal. Uh, I still think that there is room for tightening rules interference. I'd like to see it done. Uh, And uh, I think Julie Harrington has a chance to um, have some influence in this area when she comes in. I would think a lot of people will want to know what her stance is going to be uh, on interference. Um, it might be if she's minded to uh, particularly put a value on jockey safety and horse safety. Uh, then, then she'll want to act in this area. So we'll, you know, we'll have to sort of wait and see. I would think, you know, certainly when you've got an incoming chief executive, probably the BHA isn't minded to make any sudden moves before then. Um but there's definitely scope to act. Uh, I, I don't. I, I'd be very disappointed if uh, anybody thinks that solution is to hit jockeys harder than we've done before. I, I think that's rarely going to be the solution to anything. Um, but, but there's a culture there, isn't there? Um, uh, when you're talking about how horses are ridden, and it's not just the jockeys that are responsible for it. It's the trainers and owners who like to see their horses ridden a particular way. Um, if you want to change the way horses are ridden in races if you want to see you know uh, less of the aggression that can sometimes lead to problems then I think one way forward would be to to spread the pain um, when you have an interference infraction to the trainer and the owner Um, and you know if they are sharing the the penalty with the jockey then you can reasonably hope the trainers and owners will spell it out to their jockey that they don't want their horse ridden that way they would like um, you know no suggestion of interference in closing stages. They don't want their horse, once it's got in front, to sort of go across the, the next horse and, and chop him off or anything like that. Um, you don't have to be bringing disqualification or demotion into the conversation. Um, you know, but like I say, if, if owners and trainers are also at risk of uh, punishment for interference, then perhaps that will have some effect in changing minds.
1: One of the incidents we talked about on the show with Jane Mangan. And I think it was Conor O'Dwyer was the trainer. And she said that the young jockey who was involved in that incident, if you think that writing about him is bad, wait till Conor Dwyer gets hold of him because he's not going to like that one bit. And that's, that's a point is that trainers do discipline their jockeys. They do uh, give them a bollocking. I remember Paul Nichols getting stuck into Sam Thomas one day at the Cheltenham Festival, absolutely annihilating him. Um, Barry, what's your, your stance on this? Because it, It's very apparent. I didn't quite, I didn't agree with Jamie Heffernan's stance that this is being written about by people who've never ridden racehorses and therefore they shouldn't be talking about it. The vast majority of people who are supporters of racing have never ridden a racehorse. We're all entitled to an opinion and we can all see what's going on. That being said, he was mad. It was in the moment. I could understand why he was so annoyed. He's just served a long ban and now he's gotten four days. And he may very well feel that the reason he got the four days is because of the extra attention that has been given to Interference right now. And a lot of what he said, I did agree with. A lot of what he said, he did. But what is, what is your stance as, as a fan and as an industry insider of the Interference rules?
0: I personally feel that the rules are there. Um, they're well established and they've served racing well, but there's been no consistency in the implementation of them. Agree. Um and I think that goes back to stewarding. And different uh, different doctors' patients die. Um, what some stewards see in Garon Park are not necessarily going to be what the same stewards are with, are, are have seen in Ballinrobe, and there just doesn't seem—I don't know whether it's down to the stripes or what it is—but it's the it's the inconsistency in implementing the rules, be it careless, intentional, or dangerous. Um, I don't think necessarily banning jockeys for thirty days is the way forward, but if there was a consistency in stewarding, I think that would be the first steps in making it safer for uh, safer for themselves, really, and and that's what it comes to down to at the end of the day. It's it's to make the sport safer for for jockeys and horses, and um, and if the rules were implemented um, with a, a consistency, well then everyone going out to ride in a race knows what to expect if they make a certain maneuver. The Jamie Heffernan in Garen Park, he pulled out from behind and he caused a bit of a concertina effect. It was like bumper cars to his left as they came up the straight. Um, and what happens if one of those horses goes down and one of the jockeys gets hurt or the horse gets hurt? It's just, it's, it was, I know he said it was, it, it's not win at all costs, but for a lot of those jockeys it is. And they're in the moment and they're thinking in the moment.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's a very difficult job for them that they have to do. But I think if they had, if they were safe in the knowledge that there's consistency in implementing the various different um, degrees of, of interference, well, then there is a consistency in how they ride and how they their tactics within a race. And I think that's lacking at the moment.
1: I don't, I I completely agree with everything you said there, Barry. Uh, And I think you've ordered that brilliantly. I don't know how many of our audience have actually seen that race because I don't, I honestly don't, I'm not trying to be smart here. I don't know how many people are actually watching Irish racing now. I suspect that it's a considerably lower figure than it was in 2018. But his quote to the interview with Kevin O'Ryan was, it's not win win at all costs, it's win if you can. And he went on to further emphasize that If I had finished that race hard on the heels of the leaders, traveling really powerfully, then people are just going to say, I haven't tried on that horse. And that's a terrible look for racing. And you can't have it that it looks as though horses are non-triers, and that's not the case. Would they? Not at all. Nobody would. But I thought it was a very interesting thing for him to say. That that's that's how it will be perceived, because he's clearly aware of that criticism and wants to bang that out straight away and say, no, that's not the case. He wants to stamp that, stamp that out. So that argument is actually, it's a reasonably good one because you're then, you're falling between two stools in that if it is that you win if you can, and he knows that he can make that maneuver and he'll bump one or two horses, but that it won't be a serious incident. And it's not exactly one of the most valuable prizes of the year for him to go and but win. You, you,
0: you rewind that to its natural beginning and... Like, why is he anchored in on the rail in the first place then? Why doesn't he try to, to maneuver his horse out earlier? Yeah. Uh, turning into the straight, maybe.
1: Well, is that because by he by wants to disguise him. the ability of the horse?
0: No, no, no. I'm not talking about a horse not trying. I'm talking about that. that ho- He's saying that if he hadn't made that maneuver, he'd finish on the heels of horses and it would look like he was a non-jigger. But why not? Like, it, it's a bad decision from him, race riding, to stay on the rail. Because he was never getting a split, he had to force the split to get it. By the time he gets to what, about
2: furlong out, there, there's no good outcome for him. You know, it's either shove someone um, and win and accept days, or he knows that, or mm. stay where he is and, and and get beat, and and everyone's calling him an idiot. Um, and and maybe it was his fault. Maybe he should have made a move earlier. Or or sometimes you know these things just happen. You know, races don't always work out to suit you. Um, you can get trapped when. Um, you've tried to do everything to avoid that. Um, he's a very experienced jockey and he was able to judge that it, it was probably not going to be disastrous if he gave someone a little shove to get out. But there, there are other less experienced jockeys that I, I really wouldn't want making a maneuver like that. And in the end, you know, he's, he's, shoved three horses sideways, but you know, no, you know, no harm was done in particular. Um, but it, it, you know, it's only a few inches um, and these incidents can be worse. So, uh, I, I, no, if he was complaining about the four-day ban, I, I don't think he's got any grounds for it.
1: No, well, he was. <laughs> he was complaining about it, and uh, I, I recommend you watch it back if you can. I, I do recommend that you, you watch it back. It's, it, it, it's,
2: on, um, it's on Twitter, so I mean, even if people don't have um, RTV, they, can, they yeah. can see the head on for the race and listen to what Jamie's saying.
1: Yeah, he was not happy not happy at all. Um, some interesting quotes from This is a topic that's going to run and run and we can literally chat about it for 17 hours, but we'll wrap up with a final story that Barry uh, opened up about earlier on and that's Wooden Bassett. Coolmore making moves. The 2016 three-year-old European champion of Europe transfers to Coolmore from France. Uh, it's a big deal, particularly though, Barry, because he is a genuine outcross. outcross. He is a... He's free of Saddler's Wells, Galileo, Mojou, D- uh, Dane Hill, Invincible Spirit, Green Desert, Um, Dane Hill Dancer, and Dubawi. So if he can continue his good run so far, then he will be a very shrewd acquisition for Coolmore.
0: Yeah, it could prove to be all right. It's um I don't I don't know a lot about the breeding side of the game, but I, I Taught when I heard he was a twelve-year-old, and they were buying him. I thought, Geez, "Is that not a bit old?" And I was told, "No, definitely not. His, his best years are ahead of him." So, yeah, could prove to be a very shrewd acquisition. Um, and like you say, he's the outcrosser. It's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a scurry now to try to find a replacement for uh, for Galileo, who's I'm sure coming towards. He's, he's peaked, and he's probably coming down the other side now quite rapidly. And they need to find that error And, Um, They're not adverse to going out and putting the money down and trying to get him, I'd say he costs a pretty penny. And best of luck to them, I hope it pays off for them.
1: Yeah, I'm fascinated by this move, Chris, and I think it is a smart piece of business. David Lachlan was talking to Bloodhorse about it. Um, He was discussing his record saying that Almanzor, the European champion three-year-old, he uh, was from his first crop, he's had uh, the first and second in the pre-jockey club, uh, he's had two Phillies finish second, beaten only a nose, uh, and third in this year's French Guineas. And these were from nominations of €6,000 or less. So there's a lot to like about him. Um, Almanzor being the, the European champion three-year-old in 2016 for him. And uh, Wooden Bassett does appear as though he's just got what it takes. He's got the minerals, and Coolmore want to put their money where their mouth is and have them standing for them instead.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess once you get a horse like Almanzor um at, at an early stage of your stallion career, then you're in clover. Um, I tell you what, when he um, he won that sales race um, at York all those years ago, it would be oh, like 10 years ago. You know, I was there that day. Um, and as he went past the post, I said, yeah, there is there's a future very impressive stallion. He's going to be the champion stallion in France. <laughs> Who are going to come in from for definite. Such insight!
1: <laughs> you called it, Chris. You had
2: it. It's really—it's weird, isn't it? I mean, and you know, like Barry says, I'm not a bloodstock expert, but it's—it it seems a bit left field to me that that's where your future champion stallions are coming from. Um, I, I thought maybe he was doing so well in France because they're not quite playing with the—you uh, know—the same sort of quality that uh, you have in Ireland in terms of. Um, uh, breeding bloodstock, but uh, if Kumura have stepped in for him, then you know evidently he's impressed the right people. Um, I mean, they're having a tough time in France, and I guess you know if if he is a proper stallion, then it's a grievous loss to their their industry that he's going gone, um, because they you know they're struggling to win their own group ones, they're struggling to get placed in their own group ones.
1: How many of their this is a genuine question? This is not one of those questions where I've got the answer in front of me. How many of their group races since the Rona restrictions have been lifted have they actually won? Because it seems as though they're all going for export, they're either coming to Ireland or the UK.
2: Well, I suppose it's in the nature of these things that you read about their races when we win them. Um, mm. but um, but yes, yeah, so, no, I, I haven't done numbers. Certainly, the once you get to the group one level, um, it seems like British and Irish raiders are, are having a good time anyway.
1: Here's a question for you Barry Orr: What age is Galileo? 20s, Chris Cook.
2: Are we talking about the one that uh,
1: won a hurdle race at the Chopin fair No. We're talking about the real Galileo.
2: He's 22,
1: is he? Spot on. Give the gravy to Chris Cook. Saddler's Wells out of Urban Sea. 22 years of age. Uh, that
0: is old for
2: a stallion, isn't
1: it? Yeah. Sadler's Wells lived to be a good age. But I, I do remember that he retired but stayed at Coolmore. He, ha- he still had his barn at Coolmore. and um, it'll okay, be... He should have been living in the main house. <laughs> he was so good to them. Maybe he was <laughs> by the end. Maybe he was. Uh, he basically was a license to print money, Settlers, Wells. So what an absolute hero of a horse. Who are you looking forward to seeing at York this week, Barry Orr?
0: Who am I looking forward to seeing in York? Well, obviously we have... I'll be taking on Gaeth in the in the Jud month. Good man, or, Barry. Good yeah, man, Barry. I'll, him. I'll be taking him on. I think he's... Uh, He's won two soft races now so far this year, and he's won for for chalk. And a horse I'm really looking forward to seeing is actually a two-year-old in the uh, Acom Uh, on Wednesday. I saw him win uh, in Newbury a horse called Royal Scimitar. Uh, Clive Cox trains him. Never won to talk up his horses. Uh, Got up to win a neck in in what I think will prove to be a pretty decent uh, Newbury novice event Uh, The second's gone on and won a couple since line of departure and not want to talk up his horses, but I think after this he said, oh, this is a very exciting prospect and um, he looked at me on the day. So Royal Scimitar, he's about a five to one chance at the moment. So I'll be backing him and I'll be taking on Gaiat for the max.
1: Royal Scimitar, I'm liking that. Can you tell me what Price Magical is for the Jumont International?
0: Last time I looked, she was a seven to two chance.
1: I'll be taking that all day long. Thank you very, very much. Uh, Chris Cook, you were acting with disdain and disgust as Barry and I were going, yeah, oh, take on Gareth. Take no. him on all day long, son. No, I can't think of two men I
2: more respect than, than you, Kirk. Um, there's the sarcasm there's radar. No, 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 no. I mean, certainly no disdain or disgust, but I, I, a bit of a surprise, I must say, because, um, you know, Gareth looks like a train that I would rather not stand in front of. Um. Uh, but uh, I'll, I shall apply my mind again to the Judmont with Barry's uh, thoughts in mind. Uh, the horse I'm looking forward to is in the Melrose on Saturday uh, and it's bodyline um, you can get 10 to one. Um, it's a bit of a project horse so that you know that's maybe where I'm at risk here because um, I was on him in the handicap at Royal Ascot um, when I thought he was at the King George. Um, he had quite a good draw on the outside. you know it's sort of counterintuitive. For that course and distance you, you'd think an in, inside draw but actually historically outside draws are the right place to be um but then the first thing that happened was um when they came out of the stalls luke morris um yanked him straight across to the rail behind a big wall of horses instead of you know trying to sort of creep down the outside and gradually make your make your way across to a sort of reasonable position um so i, I you know i don't think he had
0: the most efficient ride that day um it, was, it wasn't a bad race that either. Sure, it wasn't? No. Uh, it was the Hukum, Hukum won. can won it. Yeah. Yes, objectiveness was in it as well.
2: That's right. Um, and so then he, he turns up in a sort of small field trappy race at Newmarket not long after that and got beat for a short price. Um, and I guess maybe that's why he's 10 to 1. Um, but now that he's in another big field handicap, um, it might work out better for him this time. That's I'm certainly hoping so. I think 10 to one's value.
1: That's your horse for Saturday. And I will just tell you to re- gamble responsibly, but get as much money as you can and get it all a magical. Dear God, seven to two, seven to two with Betfair. It's too big. It's far too big. We'll take that. Punish the bookmakers and on we go. Uh, that's, that's it. Go home for you. Come on, Barry. Come on, Barry. Uh, lay gay and back magical. Really go for it. Uh, that's it. We're back with Tumble and Roy Delarge to look ahead to the week at York tomorrow. But for now, thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you haven't listened to our interview with Barry Garrity, it's available for you in all podcast apps and at theraces.com. He's in top form looking back at his career and the reasons why he decided to call it a day. Uh, he's an absolute gentleman. That's available for you now. In the meantime, from Barry Orr. All the best, lads. From Chris Cook. Thanks for having me, Emma. Make sure to uh, check out Chris, even in The Guardian, if I can use my mouth words correctly. I'm off to drink lots more caffeine. Uh, Thank you very much for listening to the show. We'll chat to you again soon. Take care. God bless. Will it happen or won't it happen? You can bet on it with the Betfair Exchange, proud sponsors of
0: the Final Furlong podcast.
2: Have you downloaded the free At The Races app yet? With easy-to-use race cards and form, Expert daily tips plus video replays and in-app betting is the app that no racing fan's phone should be without. Available for free on your iPhone or Android mobile, visit attheracescom forward slash app for more details.